Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we are here today to break down some issues related to our favorite topic, COVID-19. Um, and we're going to jump right into it because we have a lot of material to cover today. But we want to start with employee leave requests and documentation that's related um, under the FFCRA. We've had a lot of questions on that. We'll then move into some state law developments and, and look ahead a little at what Congress might be contemplating for phase four of COVID-19 pandemic relief. So, Chase, let's start it off with that guidance on some documentation. What we're talking about is when an employee wants to take advantage of some of this new emergency paid sick leave or emergency FMLA leave, what does the employee have to actually submit? Uh, but there's two different pieces of guidance, one from the DOL and one from the IRS. The reason for that is because the DOL is charged with enforcing the rules relating to paid sick leave, including job and benefits protection, while the IRS is charged with administering the related tax credits. So there's sort of two hands in the pot there, uh, both presumably trying to do their best to produce guidance that uh, satisfies their different charges. But combining the two, we have a fairly good roadmap. It's still not perfect. Uh, but to begin with, uh, the most common question we get is, is there a model request form or a model employee form that they can submit? The answer there is no. And there's no evidence that the DOL or IRS intend to produce one. So uh, we don't have that. But the general idea is that the employee must initiate the request for leave. And they do that by providing a written request that includes the employee's name, the date for which leave is requested, a statement of the COVID-19 related reason the employee is requesting the leave, written support for that reason, and a statement that the employee is unable to work or telework for such reason. Okay, so right off the bat, that raises two big questions, and this is what we're really hearing from employers um, quite a bit. And what is the written support that must be provided by the employee, and can the employer require additional proof or documentation? Yeah, very common questions. Um, first, employers can generally rely on an employee's attestations, unless there's like a clear reason to doubt the employees. Administratively, that's the way to go. But some employers want to ask for more. They want to sign doctor's note, proof of family relationship, maybe proof of a positive COVID-19 test. We've heard that question asked. On this, we'd say proceed with caution. If it's something basic like family relationships, then it's probably okay. That's similar to asking for like a birth or a marriage certificate in connection with group health plan eligibility. Think of that process as the same. But if it's more personal or medical, like asking for a doctor's note, uh, stating the employee has a health condition, in this example it would be COVID-19, or if it's requesting to see the actual test, that gets a lot more personal and private. It could also potentially raise ADA and GINA issues. It's not likely HIPAA since it's not directly related to uh, the group health plan, but it's still very private info. State privacy laws are in play and uh, those ADA, GINA type of non-discrimination and disability protection laws have to be considered. So we'd say the easiest way to avoid all this is just rely on the employee's attestations. 
that's allowed by the IRS and DOL. It's administratively more simple. Right. And, and certainly the DOL would look favorably on being a employee-centric view. Right. So uh, that makes sense at a high level, but does the written documentation depend at all on the kind of leave being requested? So for example, if someone's leave, it leave pertains to caring for another individual or caring for children, and I know in, in some aspects they want to know if there's another adult at home who could be doing the caring instead. Right. Yeah. So the IRS does make a distinction here. And they say in the case of a leave request based on a quarantine order or a self-quarantine advice, the statement from the employee should include the name of the governmental entity ordering quarantine or the name of the healthcare professional advising self-quarantine. And if the person is not the employee, in other words, it's a family member, they need the person's name and relation to the employee. So there's some additional documentation there in giving the name of the government or the healthcare provider that's ordering that quarantine or self-quarantine. In the case of a leave request based on a school closing or child care provider unavailability, the statement should include the name and age of the child or children to be cared for, the name of the school that has closed or the place of care that is unavailable, and a representation that no other person will be providing care for the child during the period for which the employee is receiving uh, the medical leave. And then they throw in this little bit here with respect to the employee's inability to work because of a need to provide care for a child older than 14 years old. Mm. They need to provide a statement that special circumstances exist requiring the employee to provide care. They haven't met all 14-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so speak to that a little bit more. There seems to be some additional consideration um, for others in the home, you know, that, that, that others in the home aren't available to help. And as it relates also to older children. So can you speak, just delve into that a little bit more? Yeah, it's an interesting distinction that the IRS introduced in this FAQ. Uh, but the employee has to represent that no other person can provide care for the child. So if a spouse, a parent, or a grandparent is available, that could potentially be problematic for the employee if they're trying to claim this leave. Uh, so you think about situations where both spouses work, uh, the employee likely needs to include that in their explanation, saying, hey, there's another uh, spouse at home, but they're also unavailable. Um, there's another parent in the home, but maybe they're unavailable. Another situation that might come up is in a, a divorced employee and the child is going back and forth between households. Uh, the employee may need to explain that on some days they can't work and there's no other parent that can watch them that day. And as we were talking about adult children, there's this new distinction about why that older child maybe needs special attention. Uh, so think about an older child that maybe has additional needs or additional commitments beyond what would be normal. Um, in most instances, though, the employee probably can't use that FFCRA leave if all they have is older children since uh, they should be able to continue work or telework while that older child handles their school and other obligations. So uh, the rules are, of course, considered of children with disabilities or other special needs. That seems to extend to children even over age 18 that need special attention. But yeah, some interesting guidance there for, on, on older children. So just to, to add a twist to this also, when you're talking about, um, you know, having another spouse in the house, um, <laughs> then it, it also gets to this idea of being able to take leave intermittently and, and right. possibly um, allowing your spouse to do it for a while, while while you do some telework and then vice versa. So uh, and the requirement that really employers try to work with employees who, who do desire that intermittent leave. So just throwing an additional comment in here, but we'll get back to absolutely um, record keeping. 
um, talk to me more about just general record keeping and um, you know what what does how long does an employer need to keep these records? Right. So the IRS goes into this a bit more. They require really four things. First, documentation to show how the employer determined the amount of qualified sick and family leave wage paid, uh, wages paid to employees that are eligible for the credit. That would include records of work, uh, telework, and qualified family leave. Uh, second, they should retain documentation to show how the employer determined the amount of qualified health plan expenses that the employer allocated to wages. The third thing is that the employer will need to retain copies of any completed forms 7200. That's uh, the form used to claim an advance of the employer credit. And then lastly, relating to those forms, they'll need to retain copies of the completed forms 941. That's the quarterly federal tax return that the employers submit. So that gets more to the tax credit and process, but those are some things that the IRS is asking employers to hang on to, and they say they, you should hang on to those for four years. Okay. All right, so let's pivot now. We've been focusing on the federal level and FFCRA. Well, let's, let's turn to states because there's been a ton of activity at the state level. Yeah. Yeah, so states have been very active. Every state has published something related to COVID-19. Um, we do have a new NFP benefits compliance quick reference chart that recaps a, a lot of this, and uh, but it's changing. We're um, updating that as fast as we can. When we hear about things, that's available on the nfp.com latest insights page. So go find that or reach out to your NFP advisor to help you find it. Uh, but at a high level, the state responses fall into about four different buckets. The first bucket relates to carrier coverage requirements. So this would be for fully insured plans in a particular state. Three requirements under these coverage requirements that are pretty common, and, and I'm going to call them A, B, and C because we already have the four buckets. So A is carrier coverage of COVID-19 testing and screening without cost sharing or prior authorization and regardless of where it occurs. So think about it in an office, urgent care, an ER room, in or out of network, and then eventually covering the immunization or vaccine without cost sharing once it's developed. Now, FFCRA and the CARES Act at a federal level really already address this, saying all plans have to cover this anyway. B is an expansion of telehealth services. States are requiring carriers to cover telehealth expansively for all covered services and on the same terms as in-person visits. So on those two there, COVID-19 testing and telehealth, we know that the IRS is okay with covering those without cost sharing and not impacting HSA eligibility. So that's good news. Uh, but those are uh, two of the main coverage. The, th the C there is, uh, relates to prescription refills and covering those on an expedited basis, sometimes without carrier authorization and for early refills. This is so individuals can have a full supply of prescription drug medication during, a, during the pandemic. So those are three common coverage uh, requirements across states that fall into bucket one. The second bucket is relaxing premium payment deadlines. This gets back to the idea of financial difficulty during the pandemic here. Employers and individuals as policyholders may have cash flow issues. So the states are telling carriers, in some cases mandating them, to be flexible with premium payment due dates. That could come in different forms depending on the state, but the ideas have been allowing or extending grace periods, waiving late fees for tardy premium payments, working with the employer to develop a payment plan, and prohibiting carriers from terminating coverage due to non-payment of premiums. So again, this depends on the state, but some helpful flexibility when it comes to premium payments 
employers that may be struggling should reach out to their carrier and, and talk about that. So just to add a little color to that, in, in the majority of states, the Department of Insurance is only encouraging uh, carriers to provide this grace period. In about a dozen or so states, like you said, they have mandated it. Mm-hmm. But in all, even in the states in which it's mandated, there's a few states that still re- it's not automatic and it would require the, uh, the, the policyholder to actually initiate um, the request for a grace period with the carrier. So just make sure we do have these under state updates, at least on the PNC side, we'll we'll move them over to the state side as well to make sure that we're covering them all. But make sure that you do reach out to your carrier. Don't assume that it's gonna be provided to you automatically. In some cases, you do have to provide some type of um, proof that you are being harmed by COVID-19 from a financial aspect. The third bucket of these state developments Um, relates to states announcing that they're opening up a special enrollment window for their health insurance exchange. Uh, Some states are doing this to allow uninsured individuals to enroll now. Um, At a federal level so far, the federal government has declined to do this at that level, but states are doing it on their own. Uh, For most states, this is available only to those that are uninsured. So if employees remain eligible for their group health plan, uh, they may not be able to enroll. Uh, but if a furloughed or laid-off employee loses eligibility, they could enroll in the state exchange. And some states appear to be opening it up for just anyone, so it wouldn't matter if they were eligible. So that's out there, too. So, I mean, what does that mean from an employer's perspective when we think of cafeteria plans? You know, there's, certain, there's only certain ways in which uh, an, an individual can change their election. In this instance, can an employee drop employer-sponsored coverage if they're able to enroll in the exchange? Yeah, so this is actually likely a qualifying event. There are two lesser-known qualifying events that the IRS uh, invented post-ACA, and both relate to exchange enrollment. The first is called reduction in hours. If the employee goes from working above 30 hours a week to below 30 hours a week, even if they don't lose eligibility, if they intend to enroll in an exchange plan, the employer can allow the employee to drop coverage. The other is uh, just called enrollment in exchange, and that says there's a qualifying event if the employee just has an intention to enroll in exchange coverage. So under normal circumstances, uh, mid-year enrollment in the exchange is limited to special enrollments events. So these two don't really come up all that often. But in this uh, COVID-19 environment, an individual may have an opportunity to enroll in the exchange during these special state-allowed enrollment windows. And if the employee intends to enroll, the employer can allow it under either of those events. So that's true even if the employee hasn't lost eligibility. Uh, for the plan and the employee doesn't have to actually prove that they enrolled in the exchange. They just have to have the intention. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge is if they're losing, if they don't have finances because they've lost their hour, they're not being paid. um, Why would they have the intent to enroll in other coverage if, you know, so that's, so without that intent, I think it still leaves a gap for these employees of being able to drop that. Yeah. That's a great point. Right. Okay, so going back to state developments and the four buckets, you've covered the first three of state action. What's what's that fourth bucket? Yeah, we all want to have the big reveal, right? The fourth bucket. Uh, the fourth bucket is expansion of sick leave and paid family and medical leave uh, at the state and even the local level. Some states and cities are adding additional paid sick for those impacted by COVID-19, while others are just expanding the reasons to take currently available paid sick leave. A few quick examples going through here. We'll go through a few states. Colorado is one. They issued an emergency rule that requires four extra paid sick leave days 
uh, for employees impacted by COVID-19, including those that have been isolated or quarantined. Uh, California and Arizona issued some FAQ guidance that expands the reasons someone can take state paid sick leave to include COVID-19 related issues. Going down to the city level in California, Emeryville and San Francisco expanded the reasons to take city required paid sick leave. San Francisco went even further to provide public funding to employers that provide that additional paid sick leave. Terrific. So that's kind of nice. Uh, out west, Nevada and Washington, including the city of Seattle, have been active on this front. And then two cities in Minnesota, Duluth and Minneapolis. And then out east, uh, D.C. amended their D.C. FMLA rules to provide new uh, job-protected leave there relating to COVID-19. The northeast has been particularly active. I wanted to hit on this because we hear a lot about this. Massachusetts added a few FAQs regarding its state paid sick leave. New Jersey also has some new guidance out. New York, I wanted to touch on uh, quickly. They've been the most active. They've added an entirely new paid sick leave requirement for COVID-19 leave. That also impacts its current PFL, which is paid family leave, and DBL, which is disability leave programs. So the actual expansion requirement in New York depends on the size and the net income of the company, but at a high level, this new law requires job protected and paid sick leave for New York employees who are unable to work due to a mandatory or a precautionary order of quarantine or isolation imposed on the employee or the employee's minor child. How does this sick leave react or relate to the FSCRA? Can it be run concurrently? Yeah, so it's an interesting interaction. Um, the FFCRA for leaves that occur on April 1st and after, the New York COVID-19 benefits become secondary to FFCRA benefits. So if the New York uh, benefits are richer with respect to wage replacement, then uh, the New York benefit would kick in and pay the difference between the two, which uh, without going into too much detail, that could potentially mean an employee would get an additional $330 a week. Um, so we won't get into all the details. There are exceptions to that New York uh, law for smaller employees. Uh, those with between 11 and 99 have to provide only five sick days, and then those under 11 are completely exempt. Which is really, uh, there's, I mean, my eyes are crossed with you going through all of this state information, <laughs> and I'm sure our audience is as well. So what, are, I assume you're going to come up with some good resources. Yes, we are. And, and uh, we are developing a, a white paper and a summary chart for each of these states, starting with New York, that should be available very soon. And uh, hopefully that will help walk through because it is eye crossing. FFCRA on its own is eye crossing. And then you just add in these, uh, you know, multi-state developments and it can be a lot. So we'll, we'll work through these white papers and summary charts including New York, California, D.C., and New Jersey are kind of at the top of our list, and then we'll continue to monitor it. So with that, I'll put a plug-in for our NFP um, COVID resources page. If you'll go to nfp.com, there'll be a link into our COVID resources page where we have all, we will have this information as well as all of the other uh, great information um, that we've included in there. So we've gone federal, state, let's go back to federal, and we hear that there's going to be a phase four of the COVID-19 response um, fill us in a bit on that. Yeah, so anything is possible here, and we don't know a whole lot yet, but two things to perhaps keep an eye on. 
Uh, first, neither the FFCRA nor the CARES Act uh, requires coverage for the actual treatment of COVID-19. Uh, most plans probably cover illnesses and hospitalizations at a general level. And for fully insured plans, many states have enacted laws, as we discussed earlier. Uh, but we may see that being addressed in uh, any federal legislation that comes out on phase four is what they're calling it here. The second to consider is uh, that neither of those two prior uh, acts addresses COBRA premium subsidies. So if we look back a decade or so, so ago, back when we were in our teens, Suzanne, Congress enacted the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. That provided a government subsidy of 65% of the COBRA premiums for a period of nine months for employees that were laid off or terminated between September 1st, 2008 and the end of 2009. So that was the last big economic downturn. We could potentially see a similar move by Congress now as the number of unemployed individuals begins to skyrocket in connection with COVID-19 uh, shutdowns. Uh, of course, the ultimate impact depends on how long the shelter in place, this social distancing lasts, uh, but this could be even more critical this time around as it relates to health insurance coverage, because we're talking about an actual pandemic. We're talking about something that uh, people will want to have coverage. So we think there's even more reason than in 2008-09 to help people get coverage, which is why it's very possible that Congress could go after that COBRA premium subsidy, do something there in the next round of legislation. And it would be nice if it also applied to those employees of large employers, because everything we see so far is relief for the employees that are working for the smaller employers. And right, right now, it's, there's been kind of a dearth of help for uh, employees who are working for larger employees. So thank you for the wrap up on all of that. And there's so much to talk about. We um, Every week, we've got more COVID news. And we right. will continue to do these podcasts on a regular basis um, until we have nothing else to speak to, which I, it, we have not run out of anything yet. So we will keep our eyes on those two things and, and anything else that may come up. So as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you again for joining. Bye-bye.